0: Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast about intelligent design and evolution. Hello, I'm Andrew McDermott. Today my guest is Michael Eshelman, Professor of Anglophone Culture at the University of Italian Switzerland, Lugano, and Professor Emeritus of Education at Boston University. Our topic today is Eshelman's book, The Restoration of Man, C.S. Lewis and the Continuing Case Against Scientism, published by Discovery Institute Press. It's a newly revised and updated edition of Eshleman's celebrated study of Lewis and Scientism, originally published in 1983. In his foreword to the 1998 edition, George Gilder explains the importance of Eshleman's volume. At a time of technological triumphalism, it is more imperative than ever to assure that the triumph of science is a triumph of mankind, not over it. This book is an essential guidebook to the perils of scientism and the promise of a real and enduring science. Michael, great to have you on the show today.
1: Thank you, Andrew. It's nice to be here.
0: Well, some of our listeners may be familiar with C.S. Lewis, primarily from his wildly popular Narnia series. Others may be familiar with his Christian apologetics, Mere Christianity, the Letters. Many of them may be aware that he was a professor of literature at Oxford University, but I can imagine some people doing a double take at the subtitle of your book, C.S. Lewis and the Continuing Case Against Scientism. What does this Christian literature professor who wrote fantasy novels in his spare time have to do with scientism, or for that matter, science? What's the connection?
1: Well, Lewis, Lewis was first a trained philosopher. Uh, he He's one of the most brilliant people on record to have graduated from the University of Oxford, where he took what they call a triple first, which in American terms would be summa cum laude in three disciplines, the highest honors in three disciplines. And one of those disciplines, the first one in which he did his main undergraduate studies, was philosophy. So he he really was a trained philosopher. The second was classics, Greek and Latin classics, and, and he was a master of the classical languages. And the third thing he came to was the teaching of literature, which, interestingly enough, was really only developing in the 1920s at Oxford. The idea that you went to university to study literature up to that time really meant you went to study Greek and Latin literature, or perhaps uh, a foreign literature. But the idea until really the beginning of the 20th century was that literature was something you ought to know on your own. So he, Lewis pioneered the development of literary studies in England, and and he He had a a philosophical grasp of the key issues of science, and scientism is the idea that there is a misuse of science if we expect it to cover the whole horizon of philosophical issues, of rational issues, of ethical issues, That, that science ought to be seen as a subset of philosophy, a subset of the rational life. But that, in our time, and this has been going on in my book attempts to discuss this in our time, scientific materialism has has uh, in in a way dominated discourse it's a form of reductionism. We reduce things to empirical discussions about matter space time mass, energy. Lewis was in a position to appreciate the great good things about the modern world that much technology had given us. But as a, a soldier who was wounded and nearly killed in World War I at the, at the Somme in 1916 or 17, he was in a position to know that technology is always a double-edged sword, and that therefore we can't simply assume that the deliverances or the productions of science are always good. They have to be directed, they have to be understood and directed on philosophical and ethical grounds.
0: Okay. So in the early years of the 20th century, he was in a prime position, you're saying, to to watch what was happening with the technology and with the science and with scientism, which you're saying is the idea that science is the only path to knowledge and matter the fundamental reality. So he was in a good position to to critique this then.
1: Yes, absolutely. And and. I think what had happened, what's often called the Whig interpretation of history or the liberal interpretation of history that had developed since Francis Bacon in the 17th century, what had happened is that there was more and more confidence that that reason or philosophy and science were simply equivalent. And starting in 1914, modern history has shown us how destructive technology can be in the, the two world wars and Nazism and communism and so on. And Lewis was keenly aware of that. And so one modern philosopher, an American, a Jewish-American philosopher who was by no means religious or traditional, he's referred to 1914 as as the beginning of the second fall of man. Because Hmm. human beings came to believe until 1914, very large stretches of of, uh, informed and and intelligent opinion came to believe that human beings were going to enter a utopia either sooner or later later sooner if you were Marxist, uh, later if you were liberal, and that science was, was clearly the golden road to utopia. Well, Sidney Hook, the American Jewish philosopher to whom I referred, Hook said this view was in for terrible disillusionment, and he called that the second fall of man. Lewis is perhaps the most powerful, or certainly one of the most powerful witnesses of that second fall of man, from a kind of illusory, almost innocence about the simple goodness of the scientific method.
0: So even though he didn't have a PhD in philosophy, he was a trained philosopher, and you feel like it's, it's uh, foundational to science and theology to, to ground yourself in philosophy.
1: I, I think it's inevitable. Um, y- you and I are rational beings, and we have to make decisions every day, and each one of us is inevitably a philosopher. I have a Ph.D. from a prominent university, but it's not in philosophy. But the idea is that anybody with a Ph.D. is a philosopher because a doctor of philosophy is somebody who supposedly knows enough to give a good philosophical account of himself. My father was actually a a philosopher as well as a clergyman and a linguist, and he had advanced degrees in philosophy. But Lewis felt that, that each of us is a philosopher. We have to make decisions, even if those decisions are decisions where we defer to a body of specialized opinion that we ourselves don't understand. We do that on the basis of a belief, but we have to take responsibility for our own beliefs and for our own actions. So everybody is inevitably a philosopher. And epistemology, logic, ethics, rational discourse itself, these are philosophical things. And they're really logically prior to their subsets. They're prior to subsets such as science or even theology. These are subsets of, of rational discourse. They don't exhaust the discourse, and they don't invent the discourse or provide our prime terms for it. In a way, what I'm talking about is the long-term effect of the legacy of Plato and Aristotle, which was mediated by Christianity for 2,000 years. And it means that we we all we all have access to rational truths at some level. And in any case, we're responsible for the Actions and beliefs and statements that we have.
0: Yeah, I really like that explanation. Well, your book's title contains an allusion to a short book by C.S. Lewis. From the Resurrection of Man, it's clear that you hold this short book in high regard. You even hold it up as one of the more important books of the twentieth century, and you argue that intellectuals ought to hold it in much higher regard than many of them do. What is the book? Why is it so important? And what, in your estimation, has led to its underappreciation?
1: The book is The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis's lectures in the north of England during World War II. It's a short book. It's often republished and reprinted. It's translated into several other languages. And it, it certainly has had a continuing sale and a continuing influence. It's probably used especially in Protestant and Catholic colleges. And it it's probably the most powerful short defense of what's called natural law thinking the thinking that there is a natural divine law of uh, right and wrong good and evil in the universe that is apprehensible by us that is approachable that is to some degree knowable by us and it a, a, a very distinguished oxford thinker said to me recently in an email the actually the chair of the um, english faculty right now he he was referring to the book and he said he said, "I, I think it, it took some some fire on its decks, but nothing actually hit it below the waterline." In other words, the huh. book the book was has been attacked more often, ignored by technical philosophers who simply won't refer to it. But whatever criticisms have been made of it have been criticisms of the kind that in a naval battle might get you on the on the deck, but they don't get you below the waterline. And I think that's a that's a good a good way of putting it. It's really a fundamental book for the understanding not only of of philosophy and ethics, but I think for 20th century history, because so much of what happened in the 20th century, what I've called the second fall of man since 1914, was a disconfirmation and a terrible disappointment of illusory hopes, uh, illusory hopes based on on reform and revolution and, and on scientism. So I think that the book has been ignored Largely by philosophers because they don't like the traditional argument. They don't like the resurrection of the classic Platonist Aristotelian cl- Christian argument about good and evil and right and wrong. It's not explicitly a theological book and it's tightly argued, but it's argued in the way that the Socratic dialogues are argued very tightly. And I think es- esoteric specialists don't like it. There's also the element that that academics resent someone who had the kind of popular success that Lewis did. He, mm-hmm. He's just phenomenally successful, and they don't like that. They they generally like people who who do more detailed, nominalist studies of smaller problems and try to keep going a conversation in each subset of scholarly interest. And Lewis was a wide-ranging thinker, highly responsible, brilliantly educated, but one who took on the great issues and the abolition of man is is an attempt to resurrect a way of thinking and believing which has had an incalculably long and great influence on the west but which from the late 19th century uh, on was very much in decline
0: well in that answer you also um answered my question that was going to be next which was you know why is cs lewis so enduringly popular and you touch on it in a great way to understand that, people were were looking at that and kind of looked down on that, and maybe that's why they avoid some of his arguments made in that book and others. So, and you also mentioned the illusory hope that uh, people had during this time from different ideas and theories and belief systems that were not really panning out, and that reminds me of of uh, what was happening in science too. All of a sudden, uh, with Darwin and his contemporaries, things. Seemed to have flipped around to where the design that everybody depended on as reality actually was an illusion. And it wasn't really guided by anybody. And people had to wrestle with that in the moving into the 20th century. And uh, I think it's quite, quite similar to what was happening with other thoughts and, and uh, theories.
1: Yes, I think that's true. I think that's true. I think, I think Darwinism had a, a catastrophic influence on the intellectual life particularly in Germany, where it was, was picked up by by Heckel. And it was a large element of the emergence of uh, German militarism, both in its Prussian and German imperial form uh, before and during World War I, and then in its Nazi form. Darwinism took much deeper root in Germany than it did in Britain, actually. And social Darwinism really was a terribly destructive thing with respect to traditional ideas of moral responsibility, traditional ideas of moral obligation. And Darwin also had had a very bad effect on epistemology, because the attempt to allege that the fundamental animating factors in life are non-mental tends to, to diminish the importance of the mental, the conscious, the rational, the aware, the purposeful. The great philosopher Whitehead said that Scientists animated by the purpose of proving themselves purposeless make a very interesting subject for study. Darwinism tends to say that we're purposeless beings and we're driven and, and determined by factors and phenomena beyond our conscious and willing control. And that's ultimately a very demoralizing view, as well as a false one. Because his own life, as has often been pointed out, Darwin's own life was animated by the purpose of trying to pursue truths in as as much as he could. He's a good example of purposeful scientific work. He's a good example of that, and yet he's a terrible guide to the life of the mind.
0: Well, some of our listeners may be big fans of C.S. Lewis's fiction, and we haven't talked about that as much yet. So let's not disappoint them as we wrap up this first episode here. Can you give an example from Lewis's fiction where he seems to be attacking scientism? There's his Narnia series of novels, the Space Trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, Perelandra, and that hideous strength. Can you think of an example where he kind of takes on scientism, or at least offers an alternative to it?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think the best example, and it's often been noted by, by scholars, is the final novel in the, in the series, the space trilogy, That Hideous Strength, which was written in 1945 and subsequently had, had quite a run and comes in and out of print, both in a, in a revised edition, which is much shortened in England in a, a popular paperback. And in the full edition, which comes and goes in paperback also, that Hideous Strength is a fictional version of the issues of The Abolition of Man. It's written about the same time. And in the fictional version, we have a young sociologist who has all of the predictable liberal opinions of the 1930s. Uh, His name is Mark Studdock, and he is inducted into a scientific research institute which is called NICE of all things NICE the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments and this is actually a very sinister place because in this world this is a research institute with a, a essentially what could either be a fascist or a communist kind of mentality of a of of, of an elite of who that dominates and looks to dominate a vast mass of whom uh, an elite of subjects who who have the kind of scientific knowledge or, or are trying to get it that will enable them to dominate the vast mass of the whom, who are the, the great unwashed multitude. And in this novel, Studdock goes through a kind of realization, a kind of gradual, true enlightenment, where he realizes that what they call objectivity in this world of the so-called nice, which of course is ironic, what they call objectivity is not objective. It restricts objectivity to the idea of objects. And as, as I'm sure you know, Andrew, objectivity has always had in the West, ever since Plato and Aristotle, said really two meanings that are, that are not equivalent. One is simply the character of objects, of, of, of having material, spatial, or temporal existence that can be measured, weighed, tasted, touched, or felt. But objectivity in the other sense, which is central to philosophy, is the idea of that the human mind is disposed to the true and the good. And therefore, we have what could be called orthodox epistemology and ethics, that we assume that when you deal with me as a police officer, or I deal with you as a judge, or I deal with my students as a teacher, I will be objective. That doesn't mean I'm I'm going to be an object. I don't have any choice over that. I'm a rather larger object than I wish I were. But I, I don't have any choice over that kind of objectivity. But I do have a choice as, as to whether I will be objective with my students, whether you will be objective with your interviewees. And that kind of objectivity means to be disposed to knowing what's true and what's good, um, justice and, and, and truth. And Lewis's novel is about the terrible misunderstanding of these two words, whereby objectivity as objectness comes to be believed in. And, and that's one way of looking at what he means by that hideous strength we worship material power. We worship physical reality. The biggest is the best. The most powerful is the most real and so forth. And Lewis, day in, day out, year in, year out, for years and years, kept reiterating the fundamental rationalist arguments that originate with Socrates and that it provided so much light in as much as we have had light down through the history of civilization. The idea that objectivity imposes on those of us old enough to have a conversation such as the one you and I are having right now, it imposes upon us the obligation to try to understand other people in terms of the good and the true, to try to understand phenomena beyond the self. And that hideous strength is a magnificent meditation on this. And in some ways, it is deeper and it is certainly more hopeful than Orwell's 1984, which in some ways is similar to it. Written around the same time. It's similar to it because they're both dystopias. They both see the, the evil prospects and possibilities of, of unethical science. But Lewis gives hope because he, he believes, he believes more than Orwell does. He, he believes that in, that in fact we are reasoning beings, that the human person has a kind of magnetic attraction to the good and the true. And that man can't be abolished. The human person can't be abolished if people will, will continue to live in terms of the reality of their, their rational possibilities and of their rational choices. So I think Hmm. that, I think that hideous strength is really the great example in the fictional work of the attack on scientism.
0: Well, it sounds very intriguing when you put it in that context, and it's definitely something I'll need to get to. And I do think reading it in 2019 will have an interesting light cast on it. Well, Michael, that's all the time we have for this episode, but we do get to continue the conversation about your book in another installment. Next time, we'll take a closer look at other thinkers you survey in your exploration of the continuing case against scientism. Thanks for your time today.
1: Thanks very much, Andrew.
0: Well, listeners, there's a lot to unpack and appreciate about The Restoration of Man. Get yourself a copy now via Amazon or at discoveryinstitutepress.com. To listen to more episodes of the podcast, hop on to idthefuture.com or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy ID the Future or you're passionate about the evidence for intelligent design that we discuss on the show, help us reach more people by giving the podcast a five-star rating in your podcast app of choice be it Apple's Podcasts app, Podomatic, TuneIn, Stitcher, or another platform. A five-star rating helps to keep the show visible in searches and recommendations to potential new listeners. Thanks for your support. It's great to have you along with us on this journey. For ID the Future, I'm Andrew McDermott. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org and idthefuture.com.